Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off, you know what I'm about to ask you. I need you to click the link that says patreon.com forward slash Tortoise Shack. It is at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now. The Tortoise Shack has no ads, no sponsors, but relies entirely on listeners to pay it forward and keep it free for everyone. So if you get something out of what we do, please give something back. It'll only take you a couple of minutes, but it'll help carve out that bit of space we need to continue to have those conversations that we don't hear enough of across other mainstream platforms. Thanks so much for the support, the feedback, reviews, subscribing, sharing, letting people know. But I'd really urge you to click that link at the top of the pod and help keep this show on the road. Thanks again and enjoy the podcast. Hello, beautiful, loyal, delicious listeners to the Torpoise Shack so-called comedian Tyg Hickey here, and I'm just letting you know that you have my undying admiration. I always find listening to Tony's voice, even in a short phone call, extraordinarily painful. How you can do it over the course of weeks, months, and dare I say it, years, is extraordinary to me. I would be delighted and indebted if you would support my Gaza fundraiser. The money goes directly to the Irish Red Cross, who are working with the Red Crescents on the ground in Gaza. Thank you for your time. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and folks, we are obviously we're covering events in, in Palestine and Israel. Uh, we've been covering them wall to wall, but we are also keeping an eye on things that have been happening domestically and we cannot lose focus on the housing crisis that is playing out and has been for over a decade now, really, if, you're, if we're honest, from when the crisis really started to take root, maybe eight years ago, seven years ago, when it really started to become a crisis. We were talking in the amounts of 3,000, 3,500, and now, you know, we're multiples of that, unfortunately. And um, we've talked about it, and I think Rory is hosting a show, a live webinar on it on Tuesday evening with artists and, and activists from Katu and the likes of Spice Bag and the rest, so so you know, if you, you, there will be um, it is free online, so it's a, it's an online rally, and I think the, the access to that will be available for anybody who, who wants to join him, I think it's on his Instagram page uh, anyway, enough um, enough uh, giving Rory his, his, uh, his flowers, we are delighted to be rejoined on the podcast for the first time in a little while by Sinn Féin's housing spokesperson and um, oh, and Ono Bryn, who's now what? Oh, you're putting forward ten candidates in your uh, local elections, I believe. Are you, uh, what? What? My God, ten! Like, uh, uh, what are you doing trying to start a football team? So uh, we need fifteen for a football team, as you well know. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm the director of elections for the three local electoral areas in Dublin Midwest. Uh, and we've had two conventions. The second one was last Thursday. Um, we have two councillors currently across three LEAs and we're going to contest to, to fight uh, uh, 10 seats. So we've four candidates in the Clondalkin LEA, four in the Parmistown Font Hill uh, and two in Lucan. And actually, it's a really interesting mix because we, we, we've always been really keen to get a, a 50-50 gender balance in Midwest and it's always been a struggle. So we've got the 50-50 gender balance We've a really great mixture of ages, a really incredible mixture actually of professions. We've everything from business consultants to train drivers to mental health workers to youth workers. We've our first uh, Irish candidate of African uh, origin, Rosemary Mersinga, who's originally from Zimbabwe and has lived here for 15 years, raised all our kids here. So it's it's a really nice group of candidates. It's a big ask Annie, to go from two to ten, but we've, even in the past in the Midwest, we can... Uh, uh, we can achieve what other people think is unachievable. So let's wait and see. Any, any, any barristers in it, on? No barristers. 
Ah, oh, sure, you're missing a trick if you don't throw a barrister in there. Sure, that's the oldest trick. <laughs> Martin, you're the, both amateurs. You need a tax consultant. <laughs> that's, that's that's how you get things done in Ireland, folks. You get a tax and it's, consultant. It's just, just as a small aside, um, Central County Council has been controlled by Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael since the last local elections. Um, it had been previously controlled for two terms by a progressive alliance of Labour, Sinn Féin, the Greens uh, and left candidates. This election is really important to us um, because it gives us an opportunity to take back control of the council from Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. And they've done some really mean uh, spirited things in the last number of years. Probably the worst was not just increasing the council rents, but significantly increasing the council rents on pensioners. Uh, but also, for example, even though local authority doesn't have as much control uh, as we would like it to have, there are things councillors can do. Um, I mean, for example, the Kilcarbury estate uh, in South Dublin, 900 homes are currently being built on it. Uh, originally, we had wanted it to be 100% public housing, social, affordable rental, affordable purchase. Uh, and unfortunately, the Fianna Fáil Finnegan Alliance voted to sell it off. To a developer, the developer is doing a good job and they're building a good quality product, but the starter homes are €375,000. If we have had a progressive majority on the council back then, we could have ensured that that land was kept public uh, and that we could have forced the government to fund it so that every single home on that site would have been affordable. So I know people often diminish the importance of local elections. Turnouts are significantly lower than generals. Yes, councillors have far too little power, but who your councillors are really matters. And, and I think it's high time we took back control of South Dublin. Uh, from the centre right, and and at least started to do as much progressive things as we can on that council uh, after next June. Even in that, you've explained why. If three seven five is the price for a starter home, well, you have to be a TD to afford that. Oh, well, we know uh, that. On 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 a very serious point, um, uh, when that land was sold to the developer, the developer paid market price. Uh, the developer is. I've been on site. I've seen it. They're a good quality product. They're a medium sized builder. But they built two apartment blocks at the entrance to the estate. They then sold them to Tua. Uh, and when they sold them to Tua, they didn't just charge them for the cost of building. They charged the full market price of the land. They charged the developer's margin. They charged the VAT. Uh, and Tua are now using those for affordable rental. The entry level rents for those affordable rentals are fourteen fifty for a two bed and fifteen fifty for a three bed. Mm. If that site had been delivered by South Dublin County Council, with the very same building contractor, building the very same units, but as a public housing development, uh, uh, those apartments would be 800 and 900 euros a month. Uh, so, so these so, are... So no, this is, really, this, this is really crucial because we keep seeing this. this I've seen uh, the development in Delgany where the, they, they have the, these rentals and the, the, the rentals are not affordable and they're supposed to be cost rental and they're simply, you know... Delgany, De Delgany is even worse, right? So... Um, I mean, just, just to complete the point I was making first is that uh, uh, when you move from a public developer, which is a local authority or an AHB, to a private developer, a whole range of additional costs get added in. And even in the case of Kilcarbury, where the developer isn't making a huge margin, right, they're making a comfortable margin, all the other full market costs have to be paid, and that's why the rents are so high. Delgany is worse, uh, Archer's Wood, it's called. Essentially, what's happened there is Cairn uh, uh, got planning permission, built out the homes as they would do. The LDA uh, have a scheme called Project Tussie. The rules of that scheme are very clear if you go onto their website. It's meant to be for high-density schemes of units over 100 to 150 where development had stalled. And the idea was the LDA would come in, do a forward purchasing agreement, get the development back up and running and get the things built. The LDA just went in almost like a supermarket and bought those off the shelf after they had been completed. 
there's less than 100 units between the, the, the two phases of it. And Cairn, or, or, or the LDA paid Cairn more per unit than Tua had paid Cairn on the very same side for the very same units uh, for their uh, uh, social homes. So you have this mad situation now with the LDA under enormous pressure to deliver so-called cost rental homes is outbidding uh, um, uh, AHBs and local authorities, is buying units it has no right to buy. Uh, that's a suburban setting. That's duplexes and three storeys. Uh, they're paying 440 plus, is, I, is my understanding, Bad for the money. units. And and they're charging rents of 1450 and 1550 in Delgany, right? That is not what Project Hussey was from for, and I wasn't a great fan of that initiative. It's not affordable cost rental. And the LDA are about to announce the purchase of 400 apartments from Cairn in City West. I've been on site during construction. They're good quality apartments. They're not the small built-to-rent design standards. They're bigger than that. It's an area of high uh, frequency transport. You have the Lewis uh, and buses. It's close to Tal. It's close to Clondalkin. It's a good place for cost rental, right? Um, uh, but the LDA have both bought those for fourteen fifty and fifteen fifty will be the rents. And I guarantee you this: in November, the Residential Tenancies Board are going to start finally publishing rental data, which is not just new rents but existing rents, to give you an actual sense of what the actual market is charging. And all of a sudden, we're going to see that uh, these so-called cost rents that are meant to be 25% below market rent, according to the government's calculations, are actually going to be hovering quite close to the actual rents that people are actually paying in the private rent sector. I rent a two-bed in Clondalkin Village, me and Lynn. We pay 1044 There's a lot of long-term renters in stable rental that are in around that 1000 to 1500 New rents in Clondalkin, yes, are 2200 plus. But where I live... I'm paying a lower rent than a cost renter in the two apartments, and I'm in the centre of the village and closer to public transport. So this is going to cause a real problem for cost rental into the future. Why? Because the government has made a hames of it. They designed the legislation badly, they designed the scheme badly, and involving the LDA has made things even worse. And what you've just given us an example of, Owen, is you're in an area where the rents, we won't say low, but we'll say a thousand quid a month, there thereabouts for the rents. When you get an operator like that who comes in and puts the rents, then sets the rents at 2-2, the rent for the entire area goes up. It is it is upward only inflation rent pressure. And that's what happens. That's that's how they're setting rents per area. And we've seen this across different areas in Dublin, that when, when these private investors move in, they get to set the rent. And that's why we've got the highest rents in Europe. But there's another interesting dynamic, and I completely agree with you, Martin, which is for the last number of years, all the rental data we've got, both from the RTB and from Daft, is new rents and generally new stock coming into the market. And that means it's it's not telling us what the all-in average rent for long-term renters like me and Lynn and new people entering to the market. That's a really important figure to know because affordable rents should be coming in below that. They are coming in below the upper end of the market. But here's the problem. Let's imagine the people who ha- have got the uh, two uh, uh, cost rentals in Kilcarbury. <clears throat> now, they have some big advantages. It's lifetime tenure, right? So they have real security of tenure. Uh, it- it'll be managed much more professionally than some of the uh, less well-managed private rental stock, particularly from the semi-professional and accidental landlords. But at a certain point in time, it is highly possible that private market rents will fall. It's a long range of things because rents rise and rents fall. What happens 
if it becomes more expensive to cost rent in Clondalkin than to private rent. And the approved housing bodies, when they started entering into the cost rental equity loan facility that the Department of Housing and Dara Bryan put in place for these schemes, the HBs actually warned government that this is a possibility. Um, the problem is, it's the only scheme on the table. The AHBs obviously uh, are responding to, to government policy. But imagine if in five or ten years, the private rental sector is cheaper than the cost rental sector. That's not a good way to develop what's a really, really important part of fixing the housing crisis, which is very, very large volumes of permanently affordable uh, uh, cost rental homes, so, as well so, as affordable parts so, of social so, homes. So, um, here's, the, here's the question. We, like, we've had problems about the LDA since inception. As you said, they were desperate to get something on the books because... Leo Varadkar previously pledged that the LDA would be building by 2020, I think it was at the time or something, when he, when he set it up um, initially. So there, how, if you were Minister for Housing, how do you unpick this? Yeah, so, I mean, the first thing is, it's important to remember that what the LDA was originally meant to be before Fine Gael got their hands on it, and then what has changed between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are quite different things. The original conception of, of the LDA, before it was called the LDA, was a state agency that would manage public land. It wouldn't build on the land, but its job would be uh, 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 combined with significant compulsory purchase order powers, which the LDA doesn't have, and a significant budget to ensure that public land has been used in the right way and a public land has been moved from one agency to another, that agency is adequately, adequately compensated for. And if you intend to have a massive program of public house building, then this is the agency that makes sure the people who are building the homes, local authorities, approved housing bodies, and the private building contractors have the land that they need. Finia then mangled that into the kind of joint venture model, which we well rehearsed here previously and we won't go back to. And then Fianna Fáil downgraded <coughs> the level of ambition, <coughs> while at the same time insisting that it would only be public housing on public land, albeit public housing through their model that would be very unaffordable for people, both in terms of rents and house prices. And the difficulty is that the legislation underpinning the LDA doesn't really allow it to do either. It's not really being allowed to do active land management, which we desperately need, or to be a residential developer. So to answer your question, what would we do? The first thing is we would go back to first principles. We would transform the land development agency into an active land management agency. Its job would be to ensure in the first instance, local authorities and approved housing bodies would have the pipeline of land that they need for the 10 years of public house building social affordable that we need to meet the housing crisis. It would be given the compulsory purchase order powers that it currently doesn't have. It would be given the budget. And then the business of residential development would be left to organisations who know how to do that, which is notwithstanding their challenges at the moment through decades of under-resourcing and asset stripping, our local authorities and our approved housing bodies. You might let the LDA have some site servicing functions, some planning functions, but really their job should be land uh, first and foremost. And therefore, there would need to be substantial revisions to the Land Development uh, Agency Act. There would need to be a recalibration so it's involved in land acquisition, land management, land development, and then releasing that land in the first instance to councils and AHBs to build the 25,000 public homes uh, a year that are needed. Big picture, Owen. Back in 2012, the first survey of homelessness, which counted children, was done in Ireland, and it was the first ever. And the number of homeless children counted on that first survey was 457 homeless children in Ireland. That has increased by almost 900% in the time fin or Fine Gael, since Fine Gael were elected in 2012. 
do you not think that that proves beyond all doubt that homelessness is a policy of this government? It's not accidental. It is policy. And that trying to negotiate with this government on an ideological point is a waste of everybody's time. Utter, complete waste. The only thing we need to do with this government is get them out. Um, yep. uh, the only way we're going to tackle the housing crisis is with a general election. And and if those of us on the progressive side of this debate can convince a maximum number of people, we can form a government to implement a radically different housing policy. So I've given up trying to, to reason with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael for a long time when Simon Coveney was minister and Owen Murphy was minister. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that you knew we were poles apart on housing, you would still attempt to convince them at least to make some ameliorating moves uh, in the short to medium term. Um, they're not interested. Owen, 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 I gotta say they've come some ways in things like in like some of the schemes have not worked. But the idea that we could even get a government to do a tenant in situ scheme for, three years ago, we wouldn't have believed that they would have done something like this. Be, be, be very clear neither the last government nor this government had anything to do with tenant in situ. The origin of tenant in situ was Brendan Kenny, the former director of housing in Dublin City Council, had a particular problem. There were a large number of rental accommodation scheme tenancies. Uh, At one point, I think about 250 uh, uh, RAS landlords in Dublin City were looking to sell up the properties. And under the RAS legislation, the council has a very specific responsibility, which it doesn't have under HAP legislation, which is if the tenant doesn't have somewhere to go at the end of that termination uh, notice, the local authority has to rehouse them. It's one of the few good things about the RAS legislation compared to HAP. So Brendan Kenny just took the decision that in cases where he had a RAS tenant in situ with a notice to quit, because he didn't have another property to put them in, he would just buy it. Right. So Brendan and Kenny invented a tenant in situ. Uh, Billy Coleman, who was the Director of Housing in South Dublin at the time, rightfully took it on, uh, and we used it quite successfully out there. And during that period, uh, uh, politicians, and I don't know who they are because we've never got it confirmed in government, and officials in both the Department of Finance, Public Expenditure Reform and Housing, had a real problem with the scheme. So much so, despite the fact that that scheme was stopping people from becoming homeless, at the end of 2019, Owen Murphy closed the scheme, just closed it. And when Darrell Bryan became minister in June 2020, one of the first things we asked him to do was reopen the scheme. It doesn't take properties away from first-time buyers because there are people living in the properties at the time in which they're being purchased. In many cases, they've lived in those properties for over a decade because a lot of RAS tenants had had two or even three four-year RAS tenancies. Uh, Darrell Bryan refused to reopen that scheme, refused to, right? And it wasn't just me pleading. Every member of the opposition was pleading, particularly after the end of the COVID uh, ban on evictions started to see from April 2020-21 that upward trajectory. When he eventually <clears throat> uh, reopened the scheme in April 2022, so he's now two years a minister, right? Uh, all he did was he sent an email to the local authority saying, oh, you can do it if you want, right? But didn't give them any clear instruction. Um, and at the same time, there was a cap on the number of properties that local authorities could purchase because they were allowed to purchase a small number of vacant one beds and four beds for folks who were long-term in emergency accommodation. So all throughout 2022, month after month after month, as the homeless figures were rising, we were pleading with him. I actually drafted the circular and sent it to him and his officials and say, this is what you need to do to get this scheme up and running. The only reason they eventually acted in April 2023 is because they took a decision to end the uh, winter ban on no-fault evictions. It was clear that they had made no preparation. 
There was a huge amount of not just political pressure, but public pressure and media pressure. And then at the very last minute, when he had no other option, Darrell O'Brien did what we had all been asking for since 2020. So I have to say, uh, while I welcome every single tenant in situ social purchase, and a couple of councils are doing it really well. Dublin City Council has to be commended. My own in South Dublin is doing well. I think Dunleary, Ratdown and Fingal could be doing a bit better. Tenant in situ cost rental is not working at all. And there is no enthusiasm from Dara O'Brien and the Department of Housing to roll that out. Cost cost rental is not working very well overall. Let's be honest. I've had that argument with the minister. Even when something doesn't cost them anything extra, keep in mind, Dara O'Brien was underspending his capital budget year after year. Owen Murphy used to hide his blushes when he couldn't spend his capital money by doing a lot of acquisitions in the last quarter of a year. The only reason he's now doing it is because he's been hammered on his underspends. He's been hammered on the end of the ban on no-fault evictions. He's been hammered on rising homelessness and he'd nowhere else to go. If he had done it when we asked, back in June, July 2020, think of the number of families, think of the number of single people, think of the number of children who would not have been forced into homelessness. So I have to say, Darrell O'Brien deserves no credit for this at all. All of us do, and that includes you guys and everybody else who's been campaigning uh, to force a change in government policy. But in fact, tenant in situ is an example of why you can't convince these people to do anything sensible until such time as the crisis has got so bad, uh, 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 they're stuck in a corner and they think they will get them out. The crisis is extremely bad at the moment, and it is. Let's not underestimate. We have an extremely bad housing crisis at the moment. The bellwether for me for ideology on housing has always been the treatment of Airbnb or short-term lets. That's always been my bellwether. Um, If you have an elite government who will allow a certain strata of society blatantly act outside the law and restrict the number of full properties coming onto the market through short-term lets, then you have an ideological problem. We've seen in Italy this week that the far-right government can tackle Airbnb in Italy. We've seen it in other countries. Yet on the statute books here, what is happening is unlawful, and yet no action has been taken. Can Sinn Féin guarantee that in the next government, Airbnb will not get the same free pass, or these short-term lets will not get the same free pass that they've enjoyed for over a decade? Uh, absolutely. And and I mean, first of all, the actual regulations that Owen Murphy introduced uh, back in uh, 2019 are actually OK. Uh, and the reason why is because they're based on a cross-party Oireachtas committee report that I and others were involved in that set out what the regula- regulatory framework should be. The problem is Owen Murphy made a big mistake, and we warned him of this at the time, that you can't rely on the planning enforcement system to enforce those regulations because it's too cumbersome. And we called then as we have called since, for a very, very simple mechanism to ensure compliance. In fact, last year I tabled legislation. It passed through the doll without opposition, but that doesn't mean the government supports it. And it's really straightforward. Any platform or estate agent who is advertising a short-term let must ensure that they have either the uh, uh, exemption letter from the local authority or they have appropriate planning permission. And if they don't, for every single day they advertise that property on their site or in their stall, They are fined the same amount of money that they would get if that property was let out, plus a premium every single day. If you pass that legislation, overnight, the incentive for Airbnb to facilitate 
widespread breaches of planning law would end. And you see, for me, the really frustrating thing is this. The law is very, very clear. Inside a rent pressure zone, if you have a property that has residential planning uh, permission and you're using it for short-term letting, you need to apply for a change of uh, uh, use planning permission, except where it's your own property and you're letting it out for less than 90 days in a year. And that's fine. The problem with the planning enforcement system is when Dublin City Council, to their credit, tried to enforce... When they went into court, the judge was saying, well, can you prove there was somebody actually occupying that property for more than 90 days, which they couldn't, right? Uh, And we always knew this was going to be a problem. So we have to go after the platforms and the estate agents. Um, What's doubly concerning is, excuse me, while the government decided to take a different route, uh, which was to have a board fault to register, not unlike B&Bs, and that register, by the way, has has merit. I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad idea. The European Commission, bizarrely, has intervened. It, yes. it has raised some objections with the way in which uh, that register would work in certain tourist and rural areas and has forced a pause under EU legislative requirements until the end of this year to consider their options. Um, now, my view is still very simple. While all of that is happening, there is no reason on earth why government couldn't pass a piece of legislation to say very simply, in the same way, Martin, if you park your car somewhere where you're not allowed, you get a fine. That fine is slapped on. You don't need to go to court. Then if Airbnb or anybody else, because it's not just Airbnb, they're just the biggest and most profitable and most well-known. If anybody advertises a property for short-term letting that does not have appropriate planning permission, they're fined. And how would Airbnb do that? Very simple. Uh, 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 Tony Groves with his nice fancy gaff there uh, in Ballymun goes to Airbnb, Airbnb to register as a host. Airbnb says, fine, how many days a year? Tony says, three months. That's fine. Show us your change of use planning permission. Tony doesn't show it. Tony doesn't get on the site, right? It's really that simple. Tony only wants to do it for 90 days or less. He shows, he wrote to Dublin City Council to explain, that's fine. Uh, And if Airbnb don't ask for that information and advertise that property, they're given an administrative spot fine every single day. Now, uh, I have to say Airbnb have been lobbying me uh, intensively uh, because they're saying they believe this is illegal under EU law. Um, I don't take my legal advice from lobbyists in Airbnb. Did Did you see they successfully got a full article on the front of the Limerick Leader a few weeks ago? Talking about how Airbnb brings um, business into Limerick city centre, and then it was it was literally given the. And the it was, but it was. Can I say this to you? Go on. Can I say this to you? See, I, I have no problem with somebody coming forward and saying I want to provide a tourism product, right? And justifying to their planning authority when they apply for planning permission what that tourism product is and getting planning permission because we need a tourism product, right? I mean, it's also important to remember all across rural Ireland, where we don't have rent pressure zones, um, uh, the overwhelming majority of short-term lets are also breaking the law. Most of those should be regularised. They should be given the appropriate change of use planning permission and uh, 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 allow them to add to the tourist rural economy. Uh, But for me, the issue is it has to be done through the planning system. And Dublin City Council would know if an area needs more long-term rental or an area needs more hotels or an area needs more apart hotels. They need to tighten up some of the rules in their development plan, uh, and government needs to get off their back on some of that stuff. Uh, uh, But the real issue is the enforcement, and sometimes the simple ideas are the best solutions, Uh, and I'm absolutely committed to introducing that legislation if we're in government. Own uh, just one really quick thing. Um, So so we want to unpick Airbnb. We want to unpick how cost rental has been done. We have seen the new planning bill. 
and it's something that you've railed against. Oh no, you haven't. <laughs> oh no, you haven't. But it would. But okay. Let's let's ask you though. You know, we've 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 been covering this for a long time, and it's kind of topical because obviously the lads in the ditch have found themselves in 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 hot water this week and finding out. Well, you know, we genuine solidarity with the two lads. Um, for I don't I don't want I want to see them to continue to do the great work that they've been able to do. But in terms of the planning bill, you have been very vocal about how it's not fit for purpose. Is it another thing that you're going to have to unpick on day one? Just allow me just quickly to say something about the ditch, um, uh, if you don't mind. If it wasn't for the ditch, the scandal that was on board Planola would never have broken, full stop. Um, uh, the regime change that is now underway on board Planola, and there's some very, very good things going on inside the board, would not have happened. And the good people in on board Planola, because the vast majority of people who work in that organisation as professional planners and engineers and administrators... Uh, uh, who are now getting back to doing their good work would be continuing to work in a regime that wasn't fit for purpose. And if for that story alone, and I know it wasn't only one story, there was a series of them, uh, um, uh, uh, people need to seriously consider how we make sure that kind of journalism uh, continues. And I'm only saying that um, because we all knew for a long time something was going wrong with the board. There were kind of rumours in the ether, but there was nothing we could substantiate. There was nobody coming to us with the smoking gun to say, here's the problem. Uh, and I have to say, Roman in particular did an exceptionally good job in unearthing and uncovering that story, which then led to the situation we're now. And probably by next year on board Planola, will start to reduce its backlog. It's already started to make much better planning decisions in terms of large-scale residential developments. And while it's not all to do with, with the ditch and a couple of articles, none of it would have happened if those articles hadn't have broken and the subsequent chain of, chain of events hadn't unfolded. So I just want to say that because that hey, is... Here, hey, here. Yeah, fair comment. Fair on, comment. On the planning bill, <clears throat> the first thing is none of us have seen it. This is really strange. Dar O'Brien apparently brought, in inverted commas, the bill to Cabinet on the 7th of October. We're now hearing it won't be published until the end of November. Now, this was the bill that was to be published in September 2022, and which Dar O'Brien was on public record to say would be through the Oireachtas by December 2022, then said it would be published before September 2023, then said it would be published in September 2023, then brought a cabinet in October 2023 to say it would be published imminently, and we still haven't seen it. So to be very fair on the question, until I see the bill, I can't comment on it. I saw the original draft. Uh, it's terrible. It'll make our planning system much, much worse for all sorts of ways. There are good elements to the bill. There are good bits that you would want, uh, a, a renewed focus on uh, 3D placemaking and plan-leading approach to planning, statutory timelines for the board, etc. But there's a lot of really dangerous things in there. While a lot of the focus in the press was on the judicial review sections, they're the least controversial, problematic and all as they are. Things only end up in court if there's a problem with planning law. Uh, and it's the planning law we have to fix if we want to make sure people spend less time paying expensive barristers and lawyers to fight out cases in court. And the planning sections of that bill are even worse than Owen Murphy's mandatory ministerial guidelines, design standards uh, and building heights, even worse than Alan Kelly's uh, uh, special planning policy requirements, uh, mandatory ministerial guidelines in 2016. So we'll wait for the bill and then there is going to be an almighty 
battle. And that battle is not between people who want houses to be delivered or people who don't. It's between those of us who want the planning system to function, to allow our planning authorities to make good quality decisions, to meet the social, economic and residential needs of our society in line with our Paris climate change obligations and in a way that allows us to reverse uh, uh, the biodiversity loss and damage of bad planning over decades. Can we do it? Yes, we can. Is the bill, as we saw the last time, uh, the way to do it? No, it isn't. So let's wait to see the bill. It's now somewhere seven to 800 pages. There's new sections in. There's sections that were there before that we've heard have been taken out. Uh, clearly, I won't be getting any sleep for quite some time when the bill is published. It's longer, uh, it's longer it than is, the Martin Bogus self-employment thread. When, when, <laughs> but, but far less valuable and far less interesting than said thread, right? <laughs> But when, when the bill is published, <clears throat> I think you should get a few of us in to talk about it, not just politicians. There's some really good people from um, uh, uh, the Northside Community Law Centre, you folks like Fred Logue, there's folks from the Irish Planning Institute. This is one of those pieces of legislation that nobody will pay any attention to or very few will pay attention to as it's going through the Oireachtas. Wait till you see the committee stage. There'll be three of us in there, right? And yet, if that bill passes... It is going to impact on the lives of hundreds of thousands of people across all spheres of life for decades. And therefore, given how important it is, uh, uh, we need to make sure we get it right. Those bits that are bad, we have to take out. The only good thing, Martin, <clears throat> is even if the bill were enacted before the summer recess next year, which is what government currently wants, there's about a year or two years of regulations uh, to, to ensure enactment of the bill. It's actually the next government that's actually going to have to decide what, if any, of that bill to enact. My preference is why not just leave the entire bill to the next government uh, and see if they make a better job of it, whoever they are. Uh, but if there's stuff that's in the final bill that's bad, that makes our planning system worse, that leads to poor quality development, that damages the environment, that excludes communities from proper participation in placemaking, we'll fight all that tooth and nail. But what we do want is a planning system that makes good decisions in a timely manner to the benefit of the community. And that can't be beyond the reach even of uh, the current government administration. Well, you've said it's, you know, it would be better off to leave this till the next government. And we can very clearly say, and we've, we've spoken about this, there is an ideolog ideological difference between Sinn Féin and the government parties on housing. The question is, how far does that ideological difference stretch in other areas? We know Sinn Féin have a completely ideologically different view to housing. The accusation has been made, and we've seen it coming from the Green Party, that, that uh, Sinn Féin is in some way courting Fianna Fáil as a partner in the next government. Do you think that's a fair accusa accusation, Owen? Do you think it's, a, it's, it's that leveled? I mean, let's be really honest. There is a tangible, if not definable, move a little bit towards the centre from Sinn Féin. And whilst we all understand that in a, in we? a political we? arena... Well, I do. I understand it in a, in the political sense. I do. It, it makes good sense coming up to an election time. It does, without a doubt. But is Sinn Féin different enough to make the big differences that are needed? So first of all, there, there, there is no cozying up to Sinn Féin... Uh, sorry, to, to Fianna Fáil from Sinn Féin uh, currently underway. I mean, just go and watch my exchange with Dara O'Brien yesterday during the housing debate, go and look at particularly Mary Lou's engagements with Michal Martin and Michal Martin's reaction to Mary Lou every single uh, uh, week uh, in Leaders' Questions or Pierce Doherty if, if Mary Lou isn't taking it. 
Like our position is really clear. Um, our first option, our first preference, uh, our ideal outcome for the next election is a government that does not involve Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, full stop. Um, and that's not just my view. That's the view of pretty much every single Sinn Féin activist I talk to. Um, uh, and the the only thing that we're saying, and we're saying it exactly the same way as we did the last, is <clears throat> for that to happen, there have to be enough uh, progressive uh, uh, Republican left uh, 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 just transition environmentalist TDs elected to form that government. We can do our part. We can maximise the number of Sinn Féin TDs. But the day after the election, if there isn't enough progressive TDs to form the government, then we have a problem. I, I, right? I don't like that word progressive. It, goes, it, it speaks to liberalism and liberalism gets us into the mess that we're in currently where we see, you know, you can have, as Emma Kirwan says, you can have as much liberalism as you want, but if you're trying to challenge property rights, they'll play you like a snare drum. Um, so be, 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 be very clear, there, there, there are no liberals in my definition of progressive, right? Um, uh, uh, what I'm trying to do is just be broad enough because I'm not interested in battles about who's left wing or not, who's progressive or not, right? Okay, I'll let you finish on, but let me make one quick point on it. We need to be very clear on this. If you want to, we the, the left has to make a bigger tent. It has the tent has to be bigger. We can't have you know the the. I agree with you on those the 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 the, the fights over small differences, but but we also have to say um, that change the radical change that you only spoke about this week is is not going to come from the center because the center nobody no nobody's arguing it's going to come from the center but let me finish martin's question and then let me come back to the issue of the center because i think there's a problem with how some of this debate has been framed so that our position is very straightforward uh, we want to go on without finafall or finagale the challenge is if the voters don't give us those numbers and keep in mind People for Profit and Solidarity will not enter a government. Uh, I sat with them in the Programme for Government negotiations the last time, and they made very clear they would not participate in a government. They would externally support a progressive Taoiseach. They would externally support a Programme for Government. So, first of all, they're not even going to participate in the government, uh, and that position hasn't changed. Uh, And therefore, the constellation of progressive political parties, of left-wing parties, of parties for change, parties for transformation, whatever word keeps Tony happy at this time of a uh, of a Wednesday evening. The, the issue is we may not have those numbers, right? So two options arise. One option is what some sections of the left are saying. That's fine. We should walk off the pitch. Right? That's what they're saying. They're saying if we don't have the numbers to form a majority government, uh, we should walk off the pitch. Uh, um, and my problem is... I can't walk off the pitch. Come and come and sit at my constituency, constituency clinic on a Friday. Come and look at the damage, which you guys know because you do this kind of journalism, not with, just with pundits and politicians, but with real people. Come and look at the human suffering that has been inflicted on ordinary people across a whole range of areas. So therefore, the other option is as follows. If we become the largest party, what that means is the political centre has moved. Yes. Right? The political centre moves all the time. Right. One of the great successes of Margaret Thatcher is she moved the political centre to the far right. Yeah. Right. One of the things that is happening now, and Aidan Regan and others have documented this much more empirically than I will explain now, is that there is a fundamental transformation taking place in Irish society. Where it goes, we're still not sure. But the centre of political gravity in Irish society is shifting, and it's shifting, I would say, in a left Republican direction because it's not just leftwards, uh, but it's also Republicanized in a progressive way. It also has good positions in a range of, of other issues. And therefore, if we have the opportunity to create a left Republican-led government, 
then I think we have to explore it. I think the people who rely on us to be their voice and to advocate for change deserve at least that we try. Now, I'm not naive. I know how difficult that will be and I know the challenges. Uh, But I think they're the options. Uh, And what I'm saying very clearly, and we said it before, is we're not walking off any pitch, right? We will fight that battle to the end. But the determining factor will be, and this goes to, I think, the nub of both of your questions, what, what's the actual degree of fundamental change uh, uh, that would be the threshold uh, that we below which we wouldn't accept? In the general election campaign, uh, uh, we will make that very, very clear in terms of healthcare, in terms of housing, in terms of climate, uh, in terms of, of uh, employment rights, in terms of childcare, and in terms of Irish unity. We'll set those things out really, really clearly. And then ultimately, our ability to negotiate a programme for government, if we can't have one without Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, which is our preference, will be determined by the strength of our electoral uh, mandate. But I'll say this to you very clearly. Right? I've been around housing activism far too long to be in a government that's not serious about transformational change in housing. I'm not going to do it, folks. I'm sorry. Right? And that would be a view shared by many. Get, of us. Oh, no, oh, no, I would. I, I, me, no, no, me, no, 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 no. You've had, a, I've got, you've had a good run. I do think. I think it's very fair. Let me. Let me. Be very fair. One, Let me finish with one sentence, right? But we can't change everything across every portfolio in five years. And therefore, our responsibility would be to set out very clearly what issues we would be prioritising and what transformational change, particularly in those areas I've just outlined. And people will be very, very clear of that well before the election, if they're not already clear about it by now. Well, I'll, be very, I'll, I'll be very clear. There's an easy way to say all of the things that you've just said. Let's have a red-green access, please. Okay? Let's be very clear on this. Um, we need, we need, we need um, left uh, environmentalism, we need left housing policy, we need environmental housing policy, we need to put all of these things at the centre. I'm not arguing with you on this. I, w- I will point out a couple of things that obviously, you know, we're th- I was disappointed that Sinn Féin's changed his position on the Special Criminal Court. I was disappointed on Sinn Féin, you know, um, taking time to, to come to the table in terms of expelling the Israeli ambassador. I, I'm sitting here now knowing that a friend of mine is been told in well has been told now that uh, potentially if he gets to the Rafa crossing because he's an Irish passport holder the Israelis won't let him out on we should be pulling every bloody lever left available to us and it it shouldn't take this to happen for you know again for well established party policies for years and years and years of Sinn Fein let's let's not let's not water them down now before the, the the next general election which I still think might be this spring by the way there's still more rumours floating around so let, let let me address both of those because I I, I don't agree with your characterization of them I, I completely agree that you've a right to dis- disagree with us on them. The Special Criminal Court was was never about moving to the centre. Uh, this is one of these issues that just baffles me. And it's it's a story that starts with Pat Leahy in the Irish Times, but somehow pervades all sorts of other conversations. Here's the deal, right? Who do we represent at the very core of our electorate? Very, very large working class communities where organised drug crime uh, has become entrenched over the last number of decades. Entrenched. And we went into a general election uh, in 2016 and we were telling the people in North Clondalkin <clears throat> who have to live day and daily with the consequences of the Kinnahan drug cartel that if there's a trial, in all circumstances, there would be a standard jury, right? Now, where the impetus came for us to revise our policy wasn't from any desire to form a coalition. I'm, I'm telling you this absolutely point blank and bluntly, right? Uh, uh, where it came from was... 
people in our core community, people in the communities who experienced the hard edge of organized drug crime more than anybody else, were saying to, to us, are you having a laugh? Like, that just makes no sense to us. So what we did was, and I think it was the right thing to do, and I fully supported it from the start, is we set out a position whereby we don't support the Special Criminal Court, we don't support the Emergency Powers Act, we believe that there needs to be an updated system in terms of reforming the judicial system and the policing system to deal with a a, a type of organised drug crime which we've never had in our society before. We said to the government, uh, we think you should have a judge-led review. That judge-led review should be fully independent and look at all of these issues. Uh, and if you do that, um, we'll abstain on the issue of the Special Criminal Court and the Emergency Powers legislation each year. And then depending on the review at the other side of that, we'll decide if we support either the recommendations of the review uh, uh, and or what the government does on the other side of it. Right? Uh, in fairness to uh, the minister at the time, they took us at our word. They commissioned that review. I actually think the content of that review is very interesting. I don't follow justice policy like I do housing policy, but there's some really important points in it. Uh, and to suggest that implementing the recommendations of that report is simply accepting the Special Criminal Court and Emergency Powers Act as they've existed for decades is just not the case, right? They are poles apart. Now, I'm more than happy to have a debate, and I've had this debate with friends of mine who are in the legal profession, who also don't support the recommendations of the judge-led review. They think that's the wrong approach. That's fine. And I'm happy to have that debate. That is not about moving to the centre or softening positions. That's actually about dealing with the reality on the ground in our core constituency of how to deal with one element of uh, organised drug crime. And on the ambassador, uh, and and again, uh, we, we all have people that we've engaged with, met with, dealt with uh, in Palestine over a number of decades. When I was a councillor at Belfast City Hall, we would have spent a lot of time with Palestinian colleagues who came over who were trying to learn from the Irish peace process uh, uh, and take some of those lessons home. And we've continued those relationships. Like lots of people in Ireland, both in the political left and more broadly, we have a very, very strong personal, political and emotional bond with Palestine. Um, and so we should do. The calculation for us was as follows. And again, it has nothing to do with government. It has nothing to do with um, uh, um, uh, 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 cozying up to political parties. One of the big challenges for Palestine when that war, the latest phase of, of Israel's war on Gaza commenced, was that the majority of powerful countries in the world weren't even calling for a ceasefire. In fact, the initial position of the Irish government wasn't to even call for a ceasefire. So we took the view, uh, and I'd, I'll defend this to the hilt, that the single most important thing we could do for the people of Palestine wasn't for us to come out and say something, but for us to get the Irish government by way of a motion and a vote in the Irish Parliament to call for a ceasefire before anybody else was doing it. Uh, we tabled a draft motion to Fianna Fáil <coughs> a week before theirs. We couldn't get them to agree to it. We were back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. They just wouldn't agree. And instead of then losing the chance to have a unified position of the Irish Parliament on the international stage rather than the Irish opposition, we then invited Michal Martin to propose his own motion. His initial motion was very, very weak, humanitarian pause, no criticism of Israel whatsoever, uh, not unlike, for example, what eventually got passed in the European Parliament. Uh, we refused to accept that. In fairness, other opposition parties did too. There were private negotiations and eventually uh, the language was changed. Now, it wasn't anywhere as strong as we would like, but it did one thing that was really important, call for a ceasefire. And the second thing is it included at least some level of criticism uh, uh, of Israel and collective punishment uh, in the Gaza Strip. Now, 
we took a decision, and, and again, I don't mind if people criticize us for the decision, but be clear as to why we took it, is that the best service Ireland can give <coughs> to the people of Palestine is achieving the maximum level of consensus in the political arena. So it's not just the opposition, but it's uh, it, the parliament as a whole. I think that took us so far. But I also think <coughs> uh, the level of escalation of violence, particularly in the last two weeks, is way beyond anything we've seen. I mean, if you go back and look at uh, the casualties from 2008 to 2022 in Gaza, it's 6,000. In four weeks, it's 10,000. I know you know this because you've been covering it much, much more directly uh, uh, than I, uh, I've been following it. So I suppose our initial focus was the ceasefire. Our initial focus was to try and draw the Irish government into a great position. If you look at what the Irish government is saying today, Leo and Miho Martin, it's a world of difference from what they were saying four weeks ago. Uh, and then, and that, when we let, got, let's, let's give them a little bit of credit for that as well. <laughs> like you know, no, let's let's give credit to the thousands of people who've marched. Let's give credit to the enormous number of people who've emailed. We've never had email lobbies in the Oireachtas in my seven years here, like we've had over Gaza. But also, let's give credit to those of us on the opposition who took a strategic and tactical view to force that. Now, we're now in a situation where that ceasefire call has been made by the Irish Parliament. Uh, we have the United Nations, Israel, and the more powerful states, the US, uh, Britain, France, and Germany, among others, aren't listening. So now is the time to ratchet up the pressure, right? And to add, people can, and I respect other people of a different view. I'm not criticizing anybody else uh, uh, on the Palestinian solidarity movement who thinks we should have called for this earlier or later. But that's the logic of our move. So what I would say to you, Tony, is I, I've no difficulty you disagreeing with me. It's not about moving to the centre. It's not about preparing for government. It's about us trying to work out, particularly from our long experience of conflict resolution, peace building, what is the best call at the most appropriate time. Uh, and I actually think we've had far greater impact. And when I say we, I mean all of us, uh, on shifting the position of the Irish state. <coughs> uh, and I think that's recognised by the Palestinian ambassador, by people in Palestine, the fact that you're seeing flags flown. Uh, people realise that uh, uh, the Irish government, the Irish state and the Irish people have a position much stronger than the vast majority of EU member states. Only eight EU member states voted for the UN resolution. Uh, and we were one of the first of those along with Spain to call for the ceasefire. I agree with you on that. We were one of the first. Oh, and last question for me. And I asked your, one of your colleagues this question the last time I was talking to him too. When did you first attend uh, a Sinn Féin come and meet? How long ago? <clears throat> so... Uh, I moved back from London in 1995, in the summer of 1995. I'd been in London for about five years and I had joined Sinn Féin on my return and I attended a common meeting in Ballybrack. I'd say it was the autumn, maybe maybe somewhere around that. The special branch had two cars outside. The question is all going in, question is all coming out. And then I was living in Monkstown at the time, in Montpellier Parade. I was renting a place there. And there was another special branch car when I got there uh, at the end. So 1995 was the first common meeting. 1995, 2005, 2015. So you're at this 28 years. Yeah, and, and in September of that year, <clears throat> September, October, I moved to Belfast. So I've worked full time for the party almost throughout all of that period with a short uh, spell when I took time out to work for Focus Ireland in 2008, nine, and, 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 and this is where I'm going to say something nice about you now, Owen. So you've spent all that time waiting to get into government. 
We've been talking to you on housing, it must be at least four or five years now, Tony. Coming up on six. Okay, and we've been talking to you about housing. It's not like you're not prepared for the job, Owen. I mean, you were far better prepared than Potty Coffee is. You were far better than Simon Coveney, than English was, than any of them are. You've done your homework. You've put in your time. For me, I think you're better qualified for the position that anybody else has gone before you. And we did. Tony did just briefly mention, I think 28 years in waiting is a very long time in waiting to get into government or in waiting for anything. And I commend you for it. And I commend you for sticking to your guns for that long. And just before we finish, because Tony mentioned it, <coughs> that's as long as I've been fighting bogus self-employment. That's as long as I've been fighting bogus self-employment. Okay. So I would like to say, absolute, well done. 28 years stuck at the grindstone is a very long time on the promise of something. And can I say one thing, though? I've never been waiting for anything. Um, and I certainly haven't been waiting to be in government. I think if you're going to deliver any degree of profound change, then you have to take the same attitude inside a political institution as you do in any other form of political activism. It's about change. And every day is a battle to achieve whatever amount of change they can deliver. So I, I've never felt myself to be waiting for anything. Um, I'm battling for change every single day on the floor of the doll, out on the streets, in the constituency, in the media, notwithstanding the fact that I don't believe this government is going to change. I'm still going to do it. Like everybody else who's involved in movements for change across the country and, and the world. So the, the only thing I'll, I'll take issue with is I'm not waiting for anything. But uh, uh, housing has been a central part of what I've been doing for most of that 28 years, sometimes by accident, more recently by design. Um, and I, I f absolutely believe that a, a government, not an individual, but a government supported by a mobilized and energized public can drive transformational change. Uh, and for me, housing is 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 the number one issue because it's my job, but it's also the, the single biggest issue of importance to the largest section of the electorate. So what I would say, and I've said this a couple of times, is if you look at other countries where progressive or left-wing or whatever Tony's a good word for this uh, phrase <laughs> is at this stage. Oh, uh, get another uh, dig uh, in. But whenever governments for change have got elected, for real change, one of the problems is civil society demobilised because they thought their job was done and the politicians who were now going to deliver that change were in charge. The very opposite, I spoke in Belfast recently at an event and I said, the lesson of all of those other jurisdictions is <clears throat> the really hard work for civil society is when the progressive pro-change left Republican government that they want gets into office because the pressure has to be piled on, one, to ensure those politicians keep their promises, two, to ensure they have the weight of civil society in all of the daily battles they're going to fight with all of the other obstacles uh, to change that are there. And therefore, uh, I, I am in everything I'm saying to people at the moment, not just convincing them or trying to convince them of our sincerity and, and ability to drive that change, but also to say to people, we've much, much more work to do the day after a general election and the formation of a left Republican government than we've had up until now. So if you think things have been tough, Martin, in those 28 years of campaigning around bogus self-employment, uh, things will get a hell of a lot tougher uh, uh, afterwards because those people who are opposed for change would be throwing everything at us uh, and therefore we have to continue uh, uh, to do that work afterwards. And that also means civil society kicking the shins off and holding oh, the feet. I have, have, have no doubt that myself and Tony will absolutely hold your feet to the fire once you're And that's government. important. We are here to challenge power. 
And when you have that power, we will absolutely challenge you every single day. We will challenge you. We see that's what we're here to do. Thanks for having this conversation. Oh, it's really nice to have a good conversation in and around housing. Um, I think you're right. I think ideologically, this government's not going anywhere on housing. And until there is a change of government, we're not going to see any real change in the housing situation. Well, thank you for having this conversation with us. Cheers, Owen. Really appreciate it. We'll just point out to listeners that Owen was born in 1953 in Bus Aris. So just... See? I... there's a part of me that wishes that were true. Hey, see, look, 1973 you know, in Hollis Street, but you know, nobody's but, perfect. It's really? hard to stay. It's hard to stay true over over that amount of time, Martin. Um, you don't get cause. Martin it doesn't get is. Martin doesn't get the joke at all. Look, we leave it there, folks, and talk to you soon. Oh, Take and care. thanks, bye bye. Thanks for that. Bye bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony speaking to interesting people. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.